In this week's episode, we are joined with a special guest. So grab your cup of coffee and join us around the table for the one with Dr. Jonathan Borman. Welcome to Coffee and Convos. My name is Josh. I'm one of the hosts here, and I am not joined today by my beautiful wife, Becca. Normally, you would hear her right here at the intro, uh, but she actually was supposed to be in Florida right now, and uh, Florida's getting hit by a hurricane as we speak, and so her flight got canceled. The dinner that she was heading towards uh, to film and do photos for uh, got rescheduled, so she's actually uh, here in PA with me, but... Uh, she had to get caught up on some work stuff, so I am kind of flying solo today, but welcome to our podcast. We're so happy you're here. If you are not a new listener uh, or are a new listener, I would encourage you to hit that subscribe button, uh, make sure you leave a like, a comment, and uh, make sure you share it with your friends. I wanted to share uh, a coffee update. Recently, we tried some coffee from actually a local uh, Langster roaster here called Wonderless Coffee. Um, and what's really interesting, my pastor gave me uh, this sample um, and I like really, really loved it so much that I tried uh, some of it. And uh, what's interesting is this coffee shop, it's called Neighbors Cafe, um, and they're going to be opening at a place called EMM, uh, which stands for Eastern Mennonite Missions. And uh, they're opening a cafe there at that location that will support missions. This specific coffee was from Ethiopia. Uh, I really liked it. I thought really good balance. Um, I got some fruity notes from it and uh, definitely had more of like a cherry afterbody. So um, if you're in the PA area, want to support a really good cause, definitely encourage you to go check out Neighbors Cafe um, I don't think they're quite open yet, uh, but they will be soon. So uh, really excited for that. But today is a really exciting episode. We, you know, we try every season to interview some uh, just thought provokers, artists, pastors, leaders, influencers. And uh, I'm really, really honored today to have um, this gentleman with us, Dr. Jonathan Borman. Um, what an incredible guy. I think you know, the first time I got to meet him um, was when we first moved here to PA. He was one of the first faces I saw that just welcomed us. I think I actually, we were watching a live stream before we even attended on a Sunday. And uh, I believe he was hosting and just said this beautiful prayer for us. And um, so we just connected and I, I just love his heart. Jonathan grew up in a Mennonite family in Indiana. Uh, working on local farms with his uh, father's masonry business. He graduated high school. Uh, His eyes were open to the world through a one-year cross-cultural service and learning opportunity in Brazil, where he discovered a love language and culture. Um, Jonathan and his wife, Carol, served um, developing water resources, where uh, Jonathan learned French as well as um, a local language greetings and gained an understanding of African traditional religion Islam and Christianity, and um, Jonathan uh, has a PhD uh, in social anthropology, and so just really cool, like, uh, one of the things that stands out to me about Jonathan is I feel like I'm way not 
uh, as smart as he is when it comes to stuff, but he doesn't make you feel that way. Such a humble guy and just um, one who has a big heart for the world, uh, specifically in peacemaking. And uh, recently I had the opportunity to kind of get a snippet of a documentary that he's working on called Unexpected Peace. And I'm just really, really excited for you guys as listeners to hear Jonathan and his story and how this film is going to come about. I, I really do. I told this to Jonathan. I feel like this film is going to change so many people's hearts. I can tell you just the little bit that I had the honor of watching um, completely changed my viewpoint on um, the crisis in Israel uh, with the Palestine and, and that whole situation. I completely, literally changed my viewpoint from seeing them as an enemy to, wow, these are brothers and sisters on the other side who have a story to tell, who some of them are believers. And so I'm just so honored uh, to have him join us at the table today. So Jonathan, uh, first and foremost, welcome to Coffee and Convos. Uh, What an honor it is to have you here. And just to, yeah, for you, number one, it's so cool that you're in our church um, and that it's wild to me that we are here and you're like a filmmaker. Like, that's so cool to me. So before we jump into like the filming part in the documentary, because I have so many questions to ask about that. Um, why don't you just tell us about yourself, like who you are? I know I gave a little kind of brief explanation there, a little snippet, but give us like, yeah, your history and, and who you are. Cool. Well, you think it's interesting. I'm a filmmaker. I, I can tell you that honestly, I can't believe that I'm a filmmaker. Mm. Yeah. And when I tell you about my upbringing and background, you'll, you might understand. So I grew up in a rural Mennonite farm community my nearest neighbor was a mile away wow um so my childhood was at home on the farm in the garden with my brothers (laughs) or with my parents and the only time we'd ever did anything other than that was to go to school Mm. or go to church Mm. and you know we we went to church sunday morning sunday evening and often wednesday night if there wasn't a small group yeah so it was like Totally in this little isolated kind of world. Yeah. And uh, yet, um, there's all sorts of interesting pieces of culture and learning that happen in that. Because my Mm. parents were really in tune with the fact that there were a lot of migrant workers from Mexico and where I grew up in Goshen, Mm. Indiana. Yeah. And my dad got involved in some kind of a local church ministry to help them. And hmm. eventually he got so curious about it that he and my mom decided to move to Texas for the winter hmm. and help in you know, some sort of a church ministry there. Oh. And then they decided, well, we're going to move our family to Texas. So hmm. I actually went to first grade in Los Fresnos, wow. Texas. And Surprise, surprise. The main goal of first grade there was for kids to learn English. Yeah. Wow. And, and I knew English, so I I got beat up every day after school. It was terrible. Oh, my goodness. I hated it. Wow. <laughs> I would literally get off the school bus and run to my home as fast as I could so I wouldn't get beat up. Wow. Because I was the only white kid and I was different. Mm. My neighbors were mean. Mm. I don't know all the reasons, but anyway. Yeah. Um. But, you know, other than, uh, oh, my parents were, uh, my parents were adamantly opposed to anything Mm. to do with movies or TVs. Mm. So I never went to a movie once as a child. Wow. 
Never had a TV in my home. Mm. My mom still doesn't have a TV. Wow. It's a very traditional kind of old fashioned in that yeah. nature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I went to a Christian high school, a Mennonite high school. Mm. I went to a Mennonite college. Mm. Um, Did you move away from Texas during those years? Recently? Oh, I only went to first grade there. And then my parents moved, okay. moved back to Goshen, Indiana. Back to Indiana. Yeah. So from first, from the, from, yeah, from age six through, 18, I lived there. Um, but, um, you know, so my parents were the kind of parents who would teach you the Bible every night, mm. pray for you. Mm. Um, and by the time I was 18 and ready to leave, I was so ready to leave home. Mm. I mean, I, mm. within a week of graduating from high school, I was on a plane flying to Brazil. Wow. I entered, I got into a program with Mennonite Central Committee, uh, went mm. and lived and worked in Brazil for a year. Wow. Um, That's yeah. amazing. That And I, I so, saw that in your kind of bio. Yeah. You had that one yeah. year of experience there. But who am I? Mm. More about me. Yeah. Um, my wife and I served with Mennonite Central Committee in West Africa and Burkina Faso, mm. which when we went there in 1991 was if not the poorest, one of the poorest nations in the whole world. Wow. We lived for three years with no water, no electric, no phone, mm. in a little town on the edge of nowhere kind of place. Where in Africa, if, if our listeners... Burkina Faso yeah. is in West Africa. West Africa, It's okay. a little landlocked country. Okay. I loved it. Mm. Yeah, I worked on a water resource development project. Mm. Got to ride motorcycle every day, wow. dirt, dirt bikes out into the bush, sleep out in villages, and um, go to every sort of traditional African kind of mm. activity. Wow. Dancing, um, sacrifices, um, idol worship, church services. Wow. You name it. We, we witnessed it and saw it. And, yeah. And then later we went, we actually moved our family back to a different African country, Senegal. Mm. And we spent 10 years there. Our children grew up there. Mm. Um, Senegal is that on the East coast of Africa? Also on the West. On the West. Senegal okay. would be the closest point of Africa to the United States. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Geographically, I'm like thinking, I'm sure our listeners are too. Like, yeah. you know, like you've seen Africa um, and it's a huge country. So yeah. there's just so many like parts of it. The, so I, you know, I grew up in a, very close family, you know, basically didn't do anything except with family mm. kind of life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, God gifted me with an incredible interest in other cultures and mm. languages. And so, you know, I remember as a child, my parents had a friend who was Mexican. And if I would say buenos dias to him, he would put his hand in his pocket and give me candy. Like three years old. <laughs> so even there, you know, wow. I liked doing that. Yeah. Uh, went to Africa, of course, and learned French and Wolof. And I probably know greetings in five or six other languages. Wow. Uh, I, in Brazil, I learned Portuguese really well. Mm. In college, I studied Spanish. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I love how, I love the feeling of 
of sort of diving into another cultural linguistic situation and mm -hmm. just feeling it and experiencing it and yeah um trying to learn from those people and i'm sure in those countries uh in experiences you had was the gospel foreign to these people or or had it come there um it depends on the setting right mm -hmm. so you know today actually the center of force for all of christianity is somewhere in africa Mm -hmm. um, wow. Africa is just, you'll see in our lifetimes, the leader, all the leaders of Christian faith are going to be coming from Africa. Wow. Um, but I lived in Senegal for 10 years, which is 95% yeah. Muslim country. Mm -hmm. uh, so we lived in a town that was 99.999% Muslim. Mm -hmm. And, um, few if any people there could have told you any hardly anything that they would know about the bible or yeah. christians or um yeah some and this wasn't a question that um i had like sent to you ahead of time but as you're talking it just occurs to me i know uh in so many christian circles if they were to go and, and personally i've even heard it go to a muslim country there's the fear of dying yeah. of you know of them persecuting you locking you in prison or even martyrdom when you lived in you say 95 percent muslim was there a fear of that ah no no none whatsoever wow did i have fears yeah there was petty theft and and you know we were we felt alone a lot of time because we yeah. were you know living in another culture language and different faith and, yeah but um you know last week at my house in lancaster i was awoken in the middle of the night to gunfire wow and the barber shop one block from my house got the police picked up 70 shell casings oh my goodness at 2 a.m right here in our backyard right my and my backyard literally backyard yeah i mean it woke me up uh, nothing like that ever happened in senegal Interesting. So wow. we here, it's way more violent here than most places I know in Africa where I've lived and traveled. Wow. Um, so there's that kind of irrational uh, I mean, Western uh, fear. Other than places where there's actual wars going on. Well, that's sure. a different thing. But, sure. But um, yeah, I literally have thousands of Muslim friends all over the world. That's amazing. Wow. And I, I love that. Yeah. They love me. Yeah. Um, I just went and visited somebody in New York City a Muslim Quranic school teacher. He was so happy to see me. We had such a good conversation. Mm. He wanted me to explain the difference between the Old and New Testament and what in the world does Testament mean? <laughs> but that's another conversation. Yeah. A um, couple more things about me. I love sports. Mm. I love woodworking and building boats mm. and sailing. Wow. But my current thing is CrossFit. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm 55. <laughs> and I've, in the last few years, I've learned to walk on my hands and all kinds of other gymnastic yeah. things. And I just, what it boils down to really is, I mean, maybe one of the most important things to know about me and, and just like what kind of person am I is I love to learn. Yeah. So I did my PhD, not when I was a young guy. I 
I, I just finished in 2021. Wow. After my kids have grown up and left home. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Tell me real quick, um, just briefly about your kind of university history. I know, I mean, uh, having a doctorate and social anthropology, like what an interesting topic so to I, look at. Like, so I, my undergraduate degree at Goshen College was physics. Okay. Wow. But at the end of the program, my faculty advisor said, promise me you're never going to go into physics. (laughs) (laughs) I graduated with good grades, but still. Um, Then I did a master's in intercultural studies at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. Love Fuller. Wow. And I did my PhD at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in Oxford, England. Oh, my goodness. How was that? It's fabulous. What a prestigious university. Well, don't be confused. It's not Oxford University. Yeah. It's a, another school in the city of Oxford. Okay. But it is still very prestigious. And mm. the privilege of studying in Oxford is like second to none. I mean, mm. it's an incredible atmosphere. Yeah. And um, I'm so glad I had the opportunity. Wow. It, what I'm hearing as you're talking is it just sounds like a, a life that's so well lived. Like, I just feel like you're such a interesting person, but also just the history that you have. And it sounds like, you know, your, your early years definitely had some challenges in your upbringing, but just to see how God has moved you across different cultures and how I, I think it's interesting for our listeners, especially in, in a Western mindset that what Jonathan just said is, is mind blowing to me that he has thousands of friends all over the world who are Muslim. Um, because I think as believers, again, especially in more evangelical circles, there's this irrational fear that Muslims are the enemy, Islam's the enemy. And um, and we'll get into that a little bit in your film. But um, yeah, I just, for our listeners listening to that, like what an encouragement this is. And I love the CrossFit part. Um, recently, I've encountered so many people, especially more middle-aged, that are finding CrossFit to be such a therapeutic and hmm. just really great activity to do. Um, I spend, you know, like millions of other people, eight hours a day or 10 hours a day in front of a screen, right? Yeah. That's like, that's work. Right. It doesn't feel very life-giving in and of itself. Yeah. And I mean, it's for me to be able to do something outside, move my body, and my mind totally disengages from all the stuff I was working on. Mm. And I'm just moving weight or moving my body. And mm. chemically, it's good. Mentally, it's good. Mm. I, I mean, I think I'm chemically addicted to yeah. exercise. Yeah. I mean, it does something. And if I don't get a go, I'm like, oh, what happened? And- <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, don't mind me asking this, but if, and if you don't feel comfortable answering it, how old are you? I'm 55. Okay. Because I, I totally wouldn't have guessed that. I think looking at you now, and even when I first met you, I would have maybe said 42. I'm grandpa. Okay. Wow. My oldest son has a almost two-year-old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, moral to the story, do CrossFit. <laughs> Keeps you in good shape and young. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, the, another question that kind of is in your journey here, how did you find Jesus? In your journey, I know you said you were raised in a you know Mennonite Christian home, uh, and I, and I'm sure like most people who are raised in a Christian home, there is this sense of eventually at some point in your life you come to find your faith for yourself. 
you, you kind of move away from your parents' faith. So tell tell us like, hmm. yeah, what what did that look like? Was it a radical encounter or was it just a lifelong following? Well, first off, I should say I am incredibly grateful to my parents. Hmm. They really laid solid, good foundations. Hmm. And I have a heritage that I can be really proud of. Mm. And like you're saying, though, you can't be a Christian because you were born into a Christian family. Right. Um, most other religions, by the way, say that that's how it works. Interesting. If you have a Muslim father, you are a Muslim. Mm. End of story. Wow. So my Muslim friends think it's really bizarre that... Um, uh, I want my children to find their own way. Mm. Um, but I know that by the time I was 17 and 18, mm. I was totally overcome by sin. Mm. In fact, you know, the Bible describes sin as crouching at the door, waiting to have you. Mm. It was having me. Wow. I was lost. Mm. Um, and then I want to say, though, I think your question's the wrong question. How did I find Jesus? Because mm. I didn't. Mm. The hound of heaven came after me and found me. Wow. That's how I would say. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was looking for me. Yeah. The Holy Spirit was that seeking the me. 99 search of the one. Wow. So when I went to Brazil... As an 18-year-old, I got sent by the church, right? Hmm. I looked so nice on the outside, not so bad on the inside kind of situation. Wow. And uh, I meet these Brazilian kids at church that I was sent to. Hmm. I was like, man, these weird. They seem to think that this faith thing is real. <laughs> and I know it's not. Yeah. And in my own experience, right? But... I have no explanation for this. I got a desire to read the Bible for myself. Wow. And since I had literally hours every evening with nothing to do. Yeah. I started in Genesis 1-1, and I read all the way to the end of the book. Hmm. In order. Seems logical. Yeah. Certain order. I found it quite shocking. Hmm. All the things that my church and my parents had skipped. Mm. Interesting. Wow. Huh. I mean, the first one that just totally blew my mind was um, Lot's daughters get their dad drunk and say, let's have sex with him and and um, make our own families. Yeah. Like, nobody told me that. <laughs> they skipped that in Sunday <laughs> that school. That wasn't a Sunday message. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's a sort of lighthearted thing. When I got to the book of Acts, mm. And I read about this Holy Spirit. And I read what radical change had happened to Jesus' disciples in the early church because they got baptized with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I thought about my own upbringing and my church. I was angry. And I was like, either this book is just a bunch of lies. Yeah. Which it didn't seem possible. Right. Or my church didn't teach me the full message. I don't know, but this is attractive to me, but I've never experienced it. And I became so confused. Wow. 
So I finished the Bible and returned to the United States and started college, my freshman year of college. And I visited my home church once, like, yeah, never. I visited another church, another church, and I like, forget it. I don't want it. But I was really interested in this pretty young woman hmm. who's now my wife, <laughs> Carol. Wow. And I knew one day that she was going to get on a, a certain church that sent a van to pick up college students. And I thought, I'm going to go there. I'm going to sit on that van. I'm going to get a sit beside her. Yeah. I'm going to go to this church. Lo and behold, that van picks us up and takes us to my old high school. And I had an overwhelming fear getting out of the van and walking towards my old high school. Wow. Uh, if I go inside there, all my sins are going to be exposed. Everybody's going to know who I am. Wow. Wow. I tell you what, I mean, it sounds hokey, but I mean, that was how I walked into the building. And then it turns out it was like this really charismatic worship service, like <laughs> sing for an hour and a half before yeah. preaching kind of thing. Yeah. And my first thought was my parents warned me about these kind of people. <laughs> and then in the middle of it, an old woman comes up behind me and Puts her hand on my shoulder, confirming all my fears, and says, Young mm -hmm. man, God has a word for you today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, God's at the door. <laughs> wow. But, but it was this incredible word of love. Yeah. I see you. I know how confused you are. Wow. Come on. I'm going to make you a leader for my people. Wow. That's amazing. Holy smokes. I mean, I was so blown out of the water. I I had, I had no categories yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. And that was when I was 19. And I tell you, I still feel that way right now. Wow. God called me. Hmm. And I'm just like, I'm on this, this journey. I'm following. Yeah. So that's so beautiful. I would not have gone looking for Jesus. I'm serious. Yeah. I was yeah. going to go look anywhere else except there. Yeah. Well, and I feel this is a common story. I, I've personally, you know, been through it growing up in a Christian home. I mean, all my teenage years, I ran from the Lord and so many of my friends and just conversations I have with people, that's kind of their story. And it's fascinating to me. And this is what I always kind of come back to. And you hinted at it is you grow up in a Christian home, you grow up in this kind of faith community, whether good or bad um, or neutral. And there's this point in your life where you really discover Jesus for yourself. And I think maybe where other religions would say, well, you know, if your father is this, then you're going to be this. I think the danger in that is you never discover a personal relationship. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I think a lot of people in church operate this way. Yeah, Sure. Absolutely. We just go through the motions because, you know, our family's all Christian. It's the right I'm, thing I'm to a do. Christian. I, yeah. I do the right things, whatever. Yeah. The other thing I got to say, though, it's not just about that one time encounter this old woman mm. speaks to me. Yeah. What happened then next was another college student from that church came and invited me to join their small group of mm. college students. Wow. Community. And, and for a year, mm. every week, basically, somebody laid hands on me. Prayed, asked God for a word of knowledge, mm. prayed over me. I confessed sins. I got my mind rewired. Mm. I got healed. Mm. 
I was made new. I mean, it's just... Yeah. And, and it was in the context of other kids who were going through the same stuff and hurting and healing and praying and Jesus met us and in a context of a church that was trying to train up leaders. And so, mm. you know, I was trained. Yeah. I was called. Yeah. Uh, I was expected that if, you know, if you're leaning towards Jesus, you're going to step into leadership and you're going to go out and do ministry. Yeah. I mean, there's no, that was the only way we saw yeah. life as those college students there. Yeah. That's powerful. Wow. I, I'm sure, I feel like there's a, I'm envisioning right now, like a part two to this interview of just more of like your story. Cause I just, again, I feel like you're such an interesting person. I have so much wealth of knowledge, but I do want to get to the documentary, um, that you felt led to make. Cause I just, again, this documentary and I, I'm not exaggerating. This really changed my perspective on, um, peacemaking and even, uh, communities where, again, the environment I came from was very much pro-Israel, pro-America. We hate Islam hmm. and other things that don't look like our evangelical Christian way. And I, so, and, and I don't mean that to be ugly or harsh. I just think, there's much of the Christian environment in the West that is in this bubble that if they could just get outside the bubble and see what the world is, they wouldn't fear it. But what, what led you to produce this documentary on peacemaking called unexpected peace? Like what, what was going through your mind when you said, Oh, I think I'm going to make a documentary. Cause to me, I'm like, I don't even know where I'd start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like everything, it's a long story. Um, Back in 2007, I went to a, a, a conference and I heard a story there about a Mennonite Indonesian pastor mm. who made friends with a Muslim militia commander in a time in Indonesia back 1998 to 2002 when there was extreme violence mm. an all-out christian muslim war in some parts of indonesia yeah and this mennonite pastor went to the headquarters of the militia knocked on the door the guy says what do you want <laughs> he says i'm the pastor of such and such a church the guy says oh so you're a christian that means i could kill you if i want mm. what do you want he says, I want a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Now, what they were, what he was there to do was, they both, both of these two, the Christians and these, this Muslim militia, both had a radio, had radio stations, and mm -hmm. they were on competing frequencies, and there had been some change in law about the frequency. So he went there mm -hmm. to talk about a problem with their two radio stations. Interesting. They became friends. <laughs> And since then, over the last 20 years, they've transformed their city from a violent place to a peaceful place. Wow. Not them alone by any means. And this yeah. film's going to tell that. But I heard the just the bare nub of that story mm. at a conference, and it's been stuck in my mind ever since. Mm. 2019, I was working on a project with uh, Michael Hostetler, who's the director for Unexpected Peace, and Ahab Assel, who is the director of photography for our film. Mm. The three of us are, are co-producing Unexpected Peace. Mm. But we were working, they were working with me in Ethiopia on a bunch of interviews to make a website for the ministry I'm part of. Mm. 
EMM's Christian Muslim Relations Team, and another network I'm part of called Peacemakers Confessing Christ International. Wow. PCCI.team is the website. Um, and, you know, we did all this work in Ethiopia, and then in the editing process, I tell Michael one day, I got this story I want to tell in Indonesia. And I'm thinking, you know, we'll go record the story, take maybe make 15-minute short right. little video. Right. Then what happens? COVID hits. <laughs> Nobody travels anywhere. Right. Michael and I end up talking on the phone for two hours every day. Wow. And we realize we have something here mm. that could really respond to the kind of situation we have in our world right now. Mm. We live in an extremely violent world. Mm. And if you watch, I'm, I, we're in the United States. If you watch movies or listen to people talking, look at social media, almost every message you hear tells you that if, if there's danger, put up barriers. Yeah. If there's violence, you need to be ready to respond with even greater violence. Yeah. You know, gun sales went, out, went through the roof during COVID. Mm. right yeah ammunition sales went through the roof um there's i mean go out and look there's not anywhere you're going to find people pointing you to alternatives to violence right they're pointing you to more everything points you to get ready to be even more violent yeah protect yourself protect your family fight for what you want yeah um, and, you know, if you say you're a Christian and you read Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, mm. you got to find that a bit challenging. Yeah, sure. It's, it's in complete dissonance with the world we live in. Right. So Michael and I began dreaming, how could we tell this story? And uh, realized that we had something <laughs> worth working. So we've actually put it three stories together now we have uh, i interviewed in the amish community in lancaster county mm. about the west nickel mines amish school shooting mm. they're anabaptist they're from the same faith tradition as me right we're different but we're from the same roots then i interviewed in a muslim community in harlem new york where mm. i did it's the same community where i did my phd field work okay so the Amish are pacifists, and they forgave the killer of their daughters. Such a powerful story. And it blew up all over the world media. The, the, the Murids in New York City come from a West African Muslim pacifist tradition. Interesting. Wow. Now, nobody knows such <clears throat> things exist. Hmm. So, in making this film, we said, let's put a Christian story and a Muslim story hmm. that would provide an on-ramp for both Christian and Muslim viewers. Yeah. Because we want to tell a very complicated story about a Christian and a Muslim who are cooperating together for the well-being of their community. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we're also aware that a lot of people who watch this film are going to be people of no faith. Yeah. Right? Not just Christians and Muslims. Right. Um, and we want 
we want everybody to be able to watch this film because we want to basically would we want to give people new stories to live by. Mm. Yeah. You know, as I'm thinking about this, I mean, again, and I kind of meant it tongue in cheek as far as it just seems like a very daunting, like even idea to conceptualize a documentary. Like I just feel like there's so many moving parts. I mean, I can tell you as I'm writing this book I'm writing right now, trying to storyboard a book alone feels daunting at times and overwhelming. I can't imagine. uh, I think, you know, before we had started the podcast, you said your aim is a 90 minute podcast or uh, documentary. Mm -hmm. So like, how did that, I mean, I know COVID kind of maybe gave you guys time to think because everything was shut down, but like, what's the creative process look like in that? I'm just curious. Maybe you give like a little five minute deal. Michael's, older than me and he spent his whole life in communications and storytelling Mm. making videos he made a movie i think 1989 Mm. called the radicals Mm. i mean they shot it on film wow they built their own crane so they could record you know yeah very it's a really successful film um my other colleague and partner in this is Ahab Assel. Mm-hmm. Um, he was nominated. F- He's been nominated for all kinds. He's won all kinds of awards, like yeah. the F- the Frog Award for cinematography and he- the Golden Frog. I mean, okay. And um, um, a movie he was a director of photography on was nominated for an Oscar mm-hmm. in 2015. The movie's called Omar. Um, so. And me with no movie experience. Remember, wow. I, I didn't even have a TV as a child. Yeah, yeah. So we all. So what's interesting in our creative process as we produce this together is we are all radically different. Hmm. Uh, I'm an anthropologist. Ahab is a cinematographer. He's Israeli. Hmm. Um, Israeli passport, Palestinian ethnicity. Wow. Michael's a very traditional Mennonite Canadian filmmaker. Uh, if you ever heard of the book Rosanna of the Amish, it's his great grandmother. Wow. You know, um, um, what a unique combo here. And so we've, we've spent hundreds of hours mm. talking on the phone or on zoom. Mm. And um, I mean, like every time I'm, I, I talk to Michael on the phone. He says, I have a new idea. I'm like, okay, come on. Another new idea. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's cool. We, um, I, think you, I think when you see Unexpected Peace, you get, you're going to see a very cinemagra- cinematograph- cinematographic. No. Cinematography, yeah. Cinematic. Cinematic. That's the word I'm looking for. You're going to see a very cinematic type of documentary that has um, a special feel to it. Uh, I think the visual is going to be every bit as important as the words. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I can, and I can assure our listeners, um, I would encourage you if you're a listener and I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Um, So if you click the show notes, you'll be able to follow um, the social media for unexpected peace. 
some of the like little shorts that you guys have posted to your social just wow like i would think this is a multi-billion dollar film company putting this film together like seriously like those are the people i'm working with yeah and it's been for me it's a crazy experience to go from zero to having finished production on this yeah and we're now in post-production wow um you know, one of the things you asked me about was, you know, some stories from yeah. production. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we decided to green light our project on July 1st. Okay. And we started recording on July 28th. Wow. And in between, I was responsible for hiring a crew. Wow. Like, we hadn't even started looking for a crew. <laughs> wow. Um, money's always constraint, but, um, so one story is I just looked at my journal this morning mm. on June 14, I wrote in my journal, it looks like we failed. Mm. I think all of our efforts at fundraising, we must've done something wrong. We, we have nothing. We can't, yeah. we, and then the next page, June 15. It says, I got an email today saying your grant has been approved. Wow. We got a grant for $123,500. Wow. <laughs> um, we had some other money that had been given prior to that that allowed us to do all our pre-production. Yeah. And so we said on July 1st, we're going in. And we went from, I mean, I, I don't know how many people I interviewed to find assistant camera, sound mixer. Yeah. Light grip, um, you know, on right, and we hired these people. Wow, interview no, interview another person, no, interview somebody else, say, Oh, yeah, this is the one. And I couldn't believe the speed, everything moves at the speed of light in film. Mm -hmm. Like, from meeting a guy, spend 15 minutes talking, hang up, talk to my colleagues, call him back. Mm -hmm. He says, Yes, I say, Yes, I send him a contract. And he's hired. It's done. I mean, it's just amazing. It's so, so fun. Yeah. I found it exhilarating. Wow. And exhausting. But um, the other thing that happened in that three-week period leading up to July 28th was I had an intern. Hmm. And every day, I would sit down with him at 9 o'clock in the morning with a list. Sometimes 30 items, sometimes 45 items. Hmm. And we would pray. It felt awkward. Yeah. But we said, I said, we are going to pray and ask God to help us because we don't know how to do this. Yeah. And we would pray through. I would pray for one. He would pray for the next, back and forth, all the way down through our list. Wow. You would not believe the number of times some of those prayers were answered in the next hour <laughs> or answered before the next day. Wow. It was a mind-blowing experience. Yeah. I don't think most people work on films that way. Yeah. But Probably honestly, not. I have no idea how to do this. Yeah. And in that process, my colleague Ahab, you know, who spends whole world in, I mean, he's gone to the top of the red carpets in Hollywood and mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. He said, Jonathan, you're a movie producer. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, you're a good one. <laughs> 
that little boy from Indiana who it's crazy. raised Mennonite is a is a movie producer. It's just crazy wow. to me. Wow. But I am. That's incredible. What's really interesting, and for people that clearly I don't think many people understand the sheer amount of energy and also finances that go into making projects like this. Like an independent film requires, I, I think of shows like The Chosen or this new movie, um, I forget the Christian film company they're, they're producing called David, which is going to try to compete with like Pixar, essentially. Seeing what they fundraise for, I mean, The Chosen, I want to say, like early on, the very first like episode was like five million dollars just for one episode or something yeah. like that. It's wild. So our budget is three hundred and twenty-three thousand dollars. Wow. And the other thing you have to say about making a, a documentary and like we are doing it is it's a step of faith. Yeah. I honestly have never been on a project with a higher risk of failure. Yeah. Or success. Wow. I deep I, my heart of hearts. I know we're going to make something that millions of people are going to see. Yeah. At the same time, I'm a hundred thousand dollars short right now. Wow. Huh. Yeah. And I have an editor working. Yeah. How are we going to pay it? Yeah. That's. I mean, it's it's Ooh. that's where we're at. I yeah. Mean, it is. It is. You, once you say yes, you step into something that doesn't stop. Right. And, you know, taking my family to West Africa as missionaries, that was a huge act of faith. Mm. And it, it God met us. Mm. Uh, this is different in that it's very time compressed. That mm. was over years, right? Mm. This is a very time compressed thing where, you know, you hire the people, you suddenly the clock is ticking. Mm. <laughs> you set up all, I, I did 29 interviews in uh, 20 recording days. Wow. That's and, a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> and and it, uh, four days in Harlem, five days in Lancaster, and um, 11 days in Indonesia. Wow. You know, it's fascinating, and this kind of leads into um, uh, our last couple questions here. But before we get to those, I, as you were talking, and just from, again, experiencing the little short snippet that you showed um, some of us at the church and then mm -hmm. watching you guys on social media, the story I think that most fascinates me in this film is the taxi drivers in Harlem. Tell us, just give us like a little window into kind of what we're going to see there. Wow. Uh, I think it between 1989 and 1991, 28 members of the Muslim community that I interviewed in in New York mm -hmm. were murdered wow. while driving taxi. Wow. So in the late 80s, early 90s, Harlem was like a place of violence and poverty. Mm -hmm. And perfect place, the only option you have if you're a new immigrant to the United States with no papers, where are you going to live? Right. So these Muslims from Senegal moved in there, and they saw, immediately saw an opportunity. There was no taxi service in that in Harlem. Hmm. The yellow cabs would not enter Harlem. 
So these guys bought old cars and drove around Hmm. or other alternative taxi companies hired them. Yeah. And they were willing to take the risk of going in there. Hmm. And a lot of them got murdered. I got to interview uh, two different people who had tell me personal stories of their friend who got murdered. Wow. Uh, One of the men... Um, actually sits in the back seat of a taxi with me and tells me the story sitting there of wow. his friend, his roommate. Wow. And what's astonishing is this community did not arm themselves. They didn't cry out to the world, help us. They yeah. didn't they they said they they said one, they said God allowed this to happen. Mm. And two, they said the our Sufi saint the, the our religious leader who founded our special group mm. called the Muradia, mm. he was really mistreated by the French colonial powers. Mm. And when he was finally released from from his uh, exile jail that he was in, um, he said, "I forgive them for mm. everything they've done." Wow! And so these people in Harlem say, if if our founder could suffer all that and say that, then we are going to do the same thing. Yeah. And so that's the story I'm going to tell. That's beautiful. We're, this is just a curious question. Were the, the 28 murders, were, were they targeted murders? Or were no, they just random? Pretty much random. Wow. Drugs, crime, yeah. living in an extremely violent setting, yeah. working the worst hours, you know. All right. Wow, that I'm I'm really excited, uh, especially to see that interview in the back of the taxi. It's so, it's so cool. What a genius kind of film idea to to talk to someone in that in that setting. Uh, I, I'm just I'm blown away by this film, and and again for our listeners, um, we just really can't wait for you guys to see this film. Uh, in in the show notes, I'm also going to include just some links. There's going to be a link to uh, Unexpected Pieces website as well as a link to give. Is there a link to give on the website? There is. This? Okay, yeah. wonderful. So we're going to include that as well. And I would encourage you, if you feel led from the Lord or just love supporting independent projects like that, that honestly, like Jonathan said, and I and I full-heartedly believe this, I think this film has the potential to reach millions of people, to change mindsets, to crush strongholds of belief, uh, negative belief system. So I would encourage you go to the website, check it out. There's some really cool stuff on there. Um, where can our listeners find the film when it's released? And do you, I know we had talked briefly about this. Do you know kind of a perspective release date or when you're, we, when you're thinking, we believe that we're going to uh, have a rough, rough cut ready by January 15th. And we're shooting for a finished film by uh, the 1st of June. Wow. And our goal is to, our first step is we are going to enter it in film festivals. Okay. And we hope that a major company will buy it. Wow. So where to look for it, I don't know. Okay. But I hope it's someday streaming on one of your favorite platforms. Nice. And um, that's the route we're taking for distribution. So maybe just follow again, social media website for updates and yeah, where it'll be awesome. Well, if you could tell our listeners one thing, I I always love asking this to people when we interview, um, what, what would that one thing be? 
So uh, the one thing I know very much exactly what I want to say, but I want to I want to carefully say it. So unexpected peace is not going to be a Christian film. Mm. It's going to be a film for everybody. Mm. Reconciliation, peacemaking, mm. everybody in the world is hungry for it. <clears throat> Everybody's looking, where could you find that? Mm. Christians, Buddhists, people of no faith. Mm. We're making this film for, for them, mm. for everybody. Yeah. I'm very much a disciple of Jesus. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that the way of Jesus is going to affect this film and the voices you hear, you're going to hear from Christians, you're going to hear from Muslims. Mm. We're going to let everybody speak the way they want to speak. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you're going to hear all kinds of voices. Um, but what would I want to say to your audience about like the one thing? I mean, it's, it's follow Jesus. Mm. Yeah. Read your Bible, mm. pray, mm. and act. Mm. So good. Pray and act. Mm. It's God is talking all the time. Mm. If you listen, God will show you things to do. Yeah. This film, it comes straight out of that. Mm. I feel like Jesus called me to do this work. Mm. And so I'm... I'm doing it in that spirit. That's beautiful. Wow. Well, Jonathan, thank you uh, so much. What an honor it's been to have you at the table with us. And uh, hopefully uh, for those that are listening, they were encouraged today, inspired. And, and even, man, this was my prayer as we prayed over this episode that God would even give dreams, give visions of projects for the future. Because I really do think this is a future thinking project. Um, so again, in the show notes, there's some links there to be able to follow this journey along uh, with Jonathan and, and his team. And definitely when the film comes out, make sure you try to find a location to be able to watch it. And uh, again, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll I'm thrilled. Thanks. <laughs> we'll see you next week around the table. Love you guys.